O God in heaven, we glorify you and we praise you, God. We thank you that you are, in fact, the great king, that, Lord, your sovereignty rules over all, and that you are in the heavens and you do as you please. We thank you, Lord, that you have been so gracious and kind as to give us life, to give us breath, and to give us everything that we have. We thank you that you have shown your favor to us in sending your Son to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins, that all who repent and believe in him might be saved. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. And God, we ask that as we look into your word today, that you would give us insight, that you would give us understanding of your coming kingdom. God, even now your kingdom is at hand. May we have insight and discernment into what that means. God, how it is lived out and applied in our lives. I pray that you would give us great hope as we look forward to the climax and the fulfillment of your kingdom. I pray that you would help us to see clearly how these things are expressed in the scripture. And that, God, you would help us to be good ministers of this gospel of the kingdom of God. And we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives, in our homes, in our families. We praise you and we honor you. Because of Jesus' holy cross, amen. Okay, so with that, we are uh, back off into our study of the gospel. And um, had quite a few things to say about the gospel. And I just kind of want to maybe stir up the water a little bit and, and say to you that there's a lot that we have said about the gospel, and many of you may be wondering, is it really that complex? Is there really that much to it? And I want to answer by saying, oh yes, there really is that much to it, and much, much more. And uh, so today we're going to be kind of diving off into this understanding about the fact that the gospel has an eschatological element to it. That, uh, in other words, the gospel is according to the end of time. The gospel is focused on the end of history. The gospel has a fulfillment. And in scripture it is expressed in these eschatological terms. And so we're going to be talking about that this morning. So I just kind of want to remind you that there's only one gospel. And and at its core it's really rather simple. And we've talked at length about that. And what the essential elements of the gospel are. But... It is also something that is rather complex in Scripture, and it's tied to many different concepts and ideas that are expressed in the Scripture, and and this happens explicitly when the Gospel is referred to. And so, if you will, there's one Gospel, but that Gospel takes many forms, okay? And so, this morning, we're going to be looking at a different form of the Gospel. So, in other words, here we're not necessarily focused on the fact that uh, the, the core message where that, that is that the gospel is expressed in these four ways, right? Uh, that is God, man, Christ, response, right? We've talked about those at great length and what they mean, and we've looked, about, looked at the passages in Scripture that talk about the fact that, uh, uh, that salvation comes 
And justification comes by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that that's the core and the central theme of the gospel. But there is another way in which the gospel is expressed, uh, which is uh, not necessarily focused on those core and essential elements of the gospel. And so, if you will, in this case, it is an eschatological aspect of the gospel. And so it's looking toward the fulfillment of time and the fulfillment of history as it presents Christ as the king. And not only does it present Christ as the king, but along with him, his kingdom. And so it is called in the scripture in Matthew 4.23, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Or again in Matthew 24.14, Jesus says there, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so Jesus is, is talking about this eschatological element of the gospel. And, and he calls it the gospel of the kingdom, or if you will, the good news of the kingdom. Right? It's a heralding, it's a proclamation about the kingdom. And so, if you will, there's this whole other sense in which the gospel is, is, is uh, broader in its scope than just focusing on the cross. Even though the cross is the core and essential message of the gospel, there's much more to it than just that. And so, in this sense, it is the gospel of the kingdom of God. And I want to talk to you about how the scripture expresses that this morning and, and into next week. Now, I handed out some charts last week, and then I didn't say a whole lot about those. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I'm probably not going to say a whole lot about those again today. <laughs> However, next week, I am, because I'm going to lay some foundation and some background for you to understand what's on those charts. And I know some of you look at that, and you wonder where in the world I'm coming from, and and others of you might look at that and wonder, what in the world is all this? And, and uh, so I'm, gonna, I'm going to talk about those, but I don't think we're going to get there today. We might, but, but uh, doubtful. And I want to ask you to think about this. Has any of that raised any questions that anybody wants to ask? How about a show of hands? Has any of those charts and things I've given you raised any questions that anybody wants to ask? No? Okay. Well, if one comes to mind, save it, and uh, we'll have some question and some answer about, about those things. Praise God, I've been delivered. <laughs> uh, so, the gospel proclaims a king and a kingdom. Christianity expresses its hope in terms of the kingdom of God. It looks to the king to bring his rule to the earth and to restore all things to a never-ending world of peace and righteousness. Toward this kingdom, the Old Testament prophets looked forward and told of days that would be very much unlike the current days of warfare and hatred, disease and death, along with drought and famine and pestilence. It would be a day of peace and prosperity where all the world's problems would be resolved as God would bring his rule to bear upon the earth 
and drastically renew and recreate the world. Of this kingdom, George Ladd writes, Then came Jesus of Nazareth with the announcement, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4.17 This theme of the coming kingdom of God was central in his mission. His teaching was designed to show mankind how they might enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 5.20 and Matthew 7.21 His mighty works were intended to prove that the kingdom of God had come upon them. Matthew 12.28 His parables illustrated to his disciples the truth about the kingdom of God. Matthew 13:11. And when he taught his followers to pray, at the heart of their petition were the words, "Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven." Matthew 6:10. On the eve of his death, he assured his disciples that he would yet share with them the happiness and the fellowship of the kingdom. Luke 22 verses 22 through 30. And he promised that he would appear again on earth in glory to bring the blessedness of the kingdom to those for whom it was prepared. Matthew 25, 31-34. And so, if you will, there's all of these kind of elements about the kingdom that are embodied in the teaching of Jesus. But I want you to notice something with me. If you look at that little paragraph there that was written by George Ladd talking about the kingdom. Do you notice that all those scripture references come from the book of Matthew? Well, let me explain that to you. The reason for that is, is that the book of Matthew is a book testifying of the gospel, that is of the history of Christ's incarnation and what he did in his life and ministry. But it's expressed uniquely by a Jew, that is, Matthew. And as he's expressing the gospel, he's bringing it to bear upon us as the gospel of the kingdom. And Matthew's gospel is focused on Jesus, who is the king. Okay? And so, if you will, many of you may know this, but the, the four gospels present Christ in a different light. Right? In the book of Matthew, Christ is presented as the king. In the book of Mark, Christ is presented as the servant. In the book of Luke, Christ is presented as the son of man, or he's presented in his humanity. And then in the book of John, Christ is presented as the son of God. And there he is presented in his deity. Okay, But in the book of Matthew, it's uniquely focused on Christ as the king. Not only the king, but the king that was prophesied by the prophets of old. There are more references, Old Testament references, to Christ being the fulfillment of the Messiah, the King, in the book of Matthew, than there are in each of the other, other, other Gospels. Are you with me? And it's because Matthew is presenting Christ as the fulfillment of the coming King. He is being presented as the King, the one that the prophets foretold would come. Okay? And so that's uh, why you see all of those references to Matthew, and in Matthew, the gospel there is uniquely called the gospel of the kingdom. And it's a very unique term to speak about the gospel. Because think about what it's saying. It's not the, the term, the gospel of the kingdom, is not primarily focused on the cross. Are you with me? 
it, it's focused primarily on what? On the kingdom of God, which is what? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Primarily, when the kingdom of God is referred to, it's talking about his sovereign authority to rule. So it's the gospel of God's rule. It's the gospel of God's sovereignty. Are you with me? And so, if you will, uh, this is a unique focus in the book of, of Matthew. But as we're saying, the prophets of old foretold of this coming king and this coming kingdom. And when Jesus arrived, the first words out of his mouth in his public ministry were this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It came embodied in the person of the king. Okay? You with me? So the kingdom then is a major theme of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is a proclamation that God's kingdom has arrived in the person of the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus first began his ministry, he announced, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And of course that comes from Matthew chapter 4 verse 17. And it's shortly after that, that Jesus makes reference to the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. He says, uh, I'm going to read from Matthew 4, verses 18 and following. This is the word of God. Now as Jesus was walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said, he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And so here the scripture says that Jesus went about in his ministry preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And when he came, as it says in verse 17, he was preaching the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom has arrived. Okay? And of course later on he's going to be telling them that he is the king. As a matter of fact, this is the very thing that the Jews, when they brought Jesus to Pilate, accused him of. Right? And so Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Right? Because those were the accusations that were being brought against him. And of course Jesus answered to Pilate and he said, It is as you say. Amen? He was the long-awaited king of the Jews. And when he came, he came preaching the message about his kingdom, about his sovereign rule, about his authority and his sovereignty. Are you with me? Okay. So then, with this announcement of the kingdom comes a summons to repentance from sin. So think about this. Here you have a world that God has created. He's put man on the world. And in the Garden of Eden, mankind falls from his state of holiness, if you will, his state of sinless living into sin. And so, because one man sinned, he brought sin to all of his progeny thereafter, and now we have a world full of rebellious sinners. 
And of course, we've talked at length about what sin is, right? Sin is a transgression of the law of God, and it is an offense to God himself. Sin is something we do against God. And so now we have a world full of sin and a world full of sinners. And for thousands of years, uh, sinners have been doing what they do best on the earth, and the world is suffering the consequences of it. But when the king comes, and the king is himself God, very God, and he comes and announces that his kingdom has come, what do you suppose his first order of business is? Okay, well, it's, it goes like this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You understand? You understand that God has a big problem with sin. It is something for many, many years he has for, forbeared, right? The objects of his wrath with great patience, Paul says in Romans 9.22, right? Or remember how in our text in Romans 3, it talked about in God's forbearance, he had overlooked the sins previously committed, right? But now had presented Jesus as a propitiation. Remember that? Well, consider that when the king arrives and proclaims that the kingdom is now at hand, he begins this discourse with the word, repent. And of course you know what repentance is, right? Turning from sin and turning to God. Right? Or to put it quite blatantly, stop sinning. That's what repent means. Stop sinning. Okay? Well, <clears throat> if you will... When the king comes and announces his, that his kingdom has come, it is then, the announcement is then a summons to repentance. In other words, God is saying, look, I'm going to bring my authority to rule now, and guess what I'm not going to put up with any longer? Okay? And uh, this is, in fact, what the gospel is. It is a summons to repentance. This is because the nature of God's kingdom is primarily about his sovereign authority and rule as the king. The holy God will not always strive with sin in his presence, but has now proclaimed that his rule has come, and he has issued warning that all men everywhere should repent. Okay? So here's what happened. The king came into time and space. And he spoke and he announced his kingdom, and this is what he said. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this is the very message that the apostles took and went and preached. Okay? If you will, Acts 17.30, there Paul is preaching to the pagan Gentiles. And he says there, Acts 17.30, therefore... Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Okay? So here's Paul telling these uh, 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 Gentiles the gospel, and this is what he tells them, that God is declaring now that all men everywhere should repent because God has fixed a day of judgment and that he's going to judge the world in righteousness. So now that God has long overlooked the times of ignorance, 
He is now declaring that men must repent of sins because he has fixed a day of judgment. This summons to repentance was also one essential element of the gospel that was preached by the apostles as well. Okay, so what I'm saying is is that one of the essential elements of the gospel that the apostles was, were preaching was repentance. Okay, It wasn't only repentance, and again, we've got to be careful not to reduce the gospel to any one of its forms. Right? But this is one of the essential elements. So you may be reading in Scripture, and it says they were preaching repentance. You may be reading in another place in Scripture, and, and uh, they, they may be uh, saying something as simple as to the Philippian jailer. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household. Right? Well, Paul's not reducing the gospel. He, he, he's simply giving one form of the gospel in its context to the person he's ministering to. Okay? But we see this happen many places in Scripture where the gospel is expressed in various different forms, okay? And so when we talk about the gospel of the kingdom of God, you have to understand, in that form, the gospel is focused on the sovereign authority of God to rule. And based on that, God is calling all men to repent because he's not going to put up with sin in his kingdom. Are you with me? And so, if you will, this was one essential element of the gospel that the apostles preached. For instance, in Mark 6, verses 7, and then again in verse 12, in verse 7 it says, He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And then right after that, in verse 12 it says, And they went out and preached that men should repent. Okay? So, when Jesus summoned the twelve and told them to go out and preach, what did they go out and preach? that men should repent. And then in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, um, there Peter is preaching to uh, the crowds in Jerusalem. He says, Repent therefore and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And so here's Peter's gospel. You remember on the day he was preaching before that in Acts chapter 2, the, the day of Pentecost, and Peter's preaching his famous sermon there, and it says that the men of Israel were cut to the heart and said, Brothers, what shall we do? And what did Peter say? He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Acts 2.38. And again, when someone asks the question, What should I do? <laughs> In response to the gospel, the first word, family, is repent. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from the thing that's gotten you into this deep pit you're in. Turn away from the thing that's, that's ruptured your relationship with God. Turn away from the thing that's caused God to be eternally angry. <laughs> right? Are you with me? Repent, says the apostles. How about Acts 20, verse 20 and 21, where Paul is telling, I believe it's Festus there, what his gospel was. He said, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that was the substance of Paul's gospel. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is how Christ is received. He's not just a Savior, He's also a Lord. He expects us to conform our life to His teaching. Amen? 
which means primarily to stop sinning. Okay? And then Acts 26 and verses 20, Paul there also, again, describing the nature of his ministry, he says, But I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So here's what Paul was saying. He was saying, look, repent and then prove it with your actions. Prove it with your deeds. Prove that your faith is real. How? By walking in repentance from sin. Amen? Well then, in this sense, the gospel is a warning. In this sense, the gospel is a warning. So we've been talking about the gospel. And we've been saying that, you know, the, the gospel has all these different elements. And it, the gospel presents all the benefits of God that are offered in Christ for all those who believe, right? And, and that man can be freely justified before God and he can receive the hope of the coming kingdom of God. But consider the gospel in this light. Consider how the gospel is a warning to those who are sinning that if they don't stop sinning, that there are going to be consequences that they have to deal with. And so when, when Paul, many times, as he's talking about the gospel, or Jesus for that matter, or any of the apostles, you see them frequently referring to the gospel in the sense of a warning. They're warning men to what? To flee from the coming wrath. Right? You remember the story of Pilgrim's Progress? Right? And the gospel there was presented as a warning. Right? To flee from the wrath that is to come. Right? And so, if you will, the gospel is a warning. So, if you're telling people the gospel, remember, this is an essential element of the gospel. That men need to be told to repent from sin. That women need to be told to repent from sin. And that there are consequences if they do not do that. How, how can a man possibly be said to be preaching the gospel when he stands up in a pulpit in his church and he won't even talk about repentance? And he won't even talk about sin? And he won't even talk about blood that was shed on a cross? You understand? How is he possibly preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? When the first word of the gospel is repent. Repent from what? From all of your vile, wicked, evil behavior. That's what you need to repent of. And you know what? People are offended by that. People are so offended by that that when Jesus came preaching that, they killed him. And that's exactly why they killed him. Because he testified that their deeds were evil. Right? Isn't that what he told us? Didn't he say in John 3.19 that that uh, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. Right? And won't come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Right? This is exactly what Jesus was doing. He was preaching an offensive message. And that message is, look, you're all a bunch of sinners and you need to stop sinning. And that's why they killed him. They did not want to hear that. They were enraged at that. Do you remember the scene where Paul finally comes down from his Gentile ministry and he's in Jerusalem and he comes to Jerusalem 
and uh, uh, they, they've got him there, and they bind him there, and they get him, and the crowd is in an uproar over Paul, right? They are absolutely livid with Paul. They want to tear him from limb to limb. You know why? Because he told them to repent of their sins because they were a bunch of wicked sinners. They didn't want to hear it. They wanted to tear him to bits. And this is what happens when we tell sinners who love their sin to stop sinning. Okay? This is what causes persecution on Christians. This is why Christians are so uncomfortable in this world. Because everybody in this world is very comfortable with their sin. And the last thing they want to do is have to face it. And the last thing they want to do is have somebody else tell them about their sin, right? And, of course, the first accusation is always, who are you to judge me, right? Yeah. And, and the fact of the matter is, you know what? I'm just another sinner just like you are. But let me tell you what God has said. God has issued a warning that if we don't repent of our sins and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, we're going to be destroyed, and in this sense, the gospel is a warning, family. It is the most serious warning that can be issued. And when God came to the earth and manifested himself as a man, this is the warning he gave us. Are you with me? And so, because Christ is now bringing his authority as king to bear upon all mankind, he is commanding that all rebels who sin against his holy law should stop sinning and surrender to his lordship or be judged and banished from his kingdom forever. Moreover, they shall perish and die forever under the wrath of Almighty God. This is exactly what the scripture says, family. How about Luke 13.3? You know there Jesus is walking along and somebody wants to get Jesus' commentary on natural disasters. And so they say, Hey Lord, what about those 17 people on which the Tower of Siloam fell? What about them? What about that deal? What's up with God and that deal? Right? Well, you're, you're familiar with Jesus' answer, right? Luke 13.3. He says, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Right? You know what happens every time there's a natural disaster, right? Everybody starts blaming God. Right? And you know what God's commentary is? You had better change your ways, or you're going to find yourself in a similar circumstance. You with me? I don't know about you, but that scares me to death. Right? I mean, this is God in the flesh here, and He's giving us a commentary on, on natural disasters. <laughs> Right? And he does it with two different examples. Actually, they're not really natural disasters. They, they have to do with man-made things and man-made circumstances. But the point is simply that Jesus is saying, Look, if you're not in right standing with God, you're doomed for the same fate. Right? Or how about John 3.36? These are the red letters, family. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see, Jesus is calling us to obedience in the gospel. You know what that means, right? That means that we're going to stop sinning and start doing the right thing. This is what he's saying. He who does not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. Okay? 
Or how about Paul? In 2 Thessalonians, I've pointed you to this scripture several times, it is absolutely a horrific scripture. I cannot think of a more severe warning in all of scripture than this. Paul is telling the Thessalonians in chapter 1, verse 7, these guys are being persecuted in Thessalonica. And Paul is writing to um, to console them and to talk to them about eschatology, to talk to them about the coming kingdom of God, to talk to them about the day of the Lord, because they had a misunderstanding concerning the day of the Lord. And so he's writing to to just kind of straighten them out on the whole thing, right? Well, this is what he says, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. He says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, family, when you're telling people the gospel, you, you cannot divorce this kind of thing from the gospel. You understand? It's a warning. It's a warning of the most severe kind. And we are responsible to warn men. Okay? People go on in their sin, they're going to be destroyed. And ultimately, they're going to be destroyed by God. Right? Think what a crime we've done to redefine the gospel as this. God loves you and has a plan for your life. And then we got nothing else to tell anybody about except all the great, good blessings that you get when you come to Christ. And we have whole churches, the largest church in, in, in America, the largest church in America, let me tell you, they won't use the word repentance from the pulpit. They will not use the word sin from the pulpit. They do not talk about blood, and they do not talk about the cross. I want to ask you, what gospel are they preaching? Not the true one. Amen. It's a false gospel. And it's a false teacher presenting that gospel. And let me tell you, he's packing them in. 40,000 people every week. I tell you, men are heaping to themselves teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Right? The gospel is an offense to men. And unfortunately, we have to carry that. And you know, it brings with it persecution. It's not an easy thing to share with people. You know, people's lives are a wreck, you know, and many times we have an opportunity to counsel with them, and, and, and we see very clearly how their sin has just dug them in this deep old pit, you know? And, and you know, you really want to get to the nitty-gritty? Start dealing with the sin problem, okay? Which ultimately is justification by faith. Ultimately, the sin problem is dealt with at the cross, right? And there we have forgiveness, and we have healing, right? But then we've got to pick up the pieces of our life and we've got to begin to walk after Christ and follow Him and do what He does and go where He goes and say what He says. And we've got to learn how to live in right relationship with God. And then as we do that, what happens? Well, God begins to heal our life. He begins to put all the pieces back together. He begins to put us on the right track. He begins to give us wisdom by the Spirit so we stop making so many foolish choices in our life, right? And then it, it just, He just compounds the blessings on us. One after another after another. And everybody who's a Christian has this testimony. How God has rescued them from sin and given them joy and peace and the powerful life of glory and, and blessing. 
Right? That's the testimony of every true Christian. Right? But family, you, you can't go on in your sin without having great calamity in your life. Amen? Okay, well, therefore, because of this great warning and these great consequences, the great king has now warned of the arrival of his kingdom and has mercifully invited men to repent from sins and to be saved from this awful wrath which is to come. So think about what's happened. Here's this whole world full of sinners just going on in their sin, killing one another, and, and just, just going on uh, committing sin for thousands of years. God finally shows up on the scene. He tells men to repent from sin. He gives men great warning, and he also offers freely mercy. And he flings wide open the doors to the kingdom, and he says, Let him who is thirsty, let him come and drink freely from the water of life. Right? Let him who, 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 who is, is tired and weary, let him come to me. Right? And I will give him rest. He'll find rest for his soul. Amen? And at the same time that, that there is a great warning of tremendously dire consequence, there is this offer of blessing beyond our imagination. And God is offering to freely forgive our sins in Christ and justify us and make us a son in his house and put the ring on our finger and the robe on our back and kill the fatted calf. Are you with me? And so God is offering his blessing. He has graciously given rebel sinners an opportunity to freely surrender or else suffer the consequences. You know, this is what he's saying. He's showing up. It's like, it's, like a, it's like Paul Revere riding through the land and saying, the king is coming. The king is coming. Everybody better stop sinning. The king is coming. Are you with me? The gospel is a heralding of the coming kingdom of God. Okay? It's also an invitation to enter in to God's rule. Okay? But how are you going to do that? First and foremost... By stopping your sinning. Amen? That's what repent means. So, he's given this gracious offer to freely surrender or else suffer the consequences. However, along with the warning of the consequences of continued rebellion comes all the promises of God as expressed in the hope of the coming kingdom of God. Accordingly, those who respond to the gospel with repentance and faith receive and enter the kingdom of God, the realm of his rule, and forever live in the fullness of its blessing. The experience of this blessing is glorious and fulfilling beyond what words can express. Amen? And so at the same time that we get this dire warning of the most severe consequences if we don't obey, we are also receiving a promise of a kingdom which is the apex of everything that is good and everything that is fulfilling and everything that can fulfill our souls. Amen? And so, um, thus is the gospel. It's a warning of, 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 uh, of dire consequence and a promise of tremendous blessing for those who obey it. Amen? Okay, so then, uh, the three expressions of the kingdom in the New Testament. So, 
I know that some of this may be somewhat confusing to some of you if you're newer Christians. And I want to talk to you about that just for a minute, okay? In the Bible, in the storyline of the Bible, we have what we call eschatology, okay? It's the study of the end of times. It's the study of last things. It's the study of the fulfillment of history, okay? And so when, when you start to examine the Bible concerning eschatology, it is a massive undertaking, because it encompasses so many things that are in the Bible, so many prophecies that are in the Bible, and then you have what we call the prophetic perspective. Right, Brother Greg? The prophetic per- perspective, okay? And what that is, is when, when, the, when a prophet speaks, he's speaking a word that comes from God who is in eternity. And when God testifies into time and space from eternity, he can speak of events in history past that are yet to come to pass, but that throughout history may have different stages in their fulfillment. So he may speak one one sentence or one paragraph that speaks about events that are yet to come, but those events might come to pass over the course of history and not necessarily all at one time. So what you have is this, what I call this telescoping view, many times in prophetic language, that, that presents these things all as if they're one reality. However, they, they, they have different fulfillments in time and space. And I'm, I'm going to talk with you more about that. But I want to talk to some of you who are struggling. Like, for instance, if you were reading this book, and some of it seemed this Gospel of the Kingdom by George Ladd, and some of the first few chapters seem rather involved and complex and, and, and kind of hard to get your hands around. Anybody get that from this? Okay, I heard, I heard some, some of that. But, so the point is, is what is all of that about? Okay, well, it's all about several things, but here's, the, here's what's going to solve the problem for you, if you can grasp this thing. In the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament, when the kingdom of God is spoken of in the language of the Bible, it's expressed primarily in three different kinds of ways. Okay? The one and most primary, dominant way is it speaks of God's rule, his authority, his sovereignty, his power. Okay, so it's, it's the kingdom of God. In other words, this realm is the realm where God rules, okay? There's another expression of the kingdom of God in the New Testament where it is something that has already come and something that we can enter into and experience right now. In fact, if you're a Christian, you have entered the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is within you because the Holy Spirit has come to live and dwell in you, and right now you are underneath the rule of the king who is Jesus. And by virtue of that, you've entered into the present kingdom of God, and you are now experiencing the powers of the coming age like it expresses in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3, right? Where it's talking about, you know, the powers of the coming age. You're experiencing that now. You're experiencing the joy and the blessedness and the peace of God's kingdom, which is also in the New Testament, yet to come. So there's these three expressions. It's speaking in, in many places about its rule, his authority. In other places, about a present reality that we can now enter into and possess, or a yet future reality that is yet to come. 
Okay? And so, and, and this is part of that chart that I showed you. In New Testament language, when the kingdom of God is spoken of, remember how I was telling you before, it, it is the kingdom which is now, but not yet. Remember that? Well, what, what we mean by that is that right now, in this, what we call this present age, which also is a biblical term, I think that's Galatians 1.4, uh, this present age is an age that the kingdom of God has come, and it is now, and we can enter in. And when the king came, when Jesus came in his ministry, he brought the kingdom to God to bear upon mankind, and he told us how we could enter in, he told us how we could come under the rule of God, right? But he also spoke about it as something yet to come where he was speaking of a future climax that would happen in the kingdom. I'm going to show you some of this language in the Bible, but <clears throat> this will kind of unwind some of those conundrums you have in your mind as you're reading through Scripture. So when you read about the kingdom, don't just think of the kingdom in terms of one of these three expressions, but think of it in terms that that text where you're reading it is going to be expressed in one of these three kinds of expressions. So it may be talking about a present reality, or it may be talking about a yet future fulfillment. Or it may simply be talking about God's rule, his authority, his realm. Are you with me? I'm going to explain it in detail, but when you look at it in the course of history, okay, this is time right here. This is time going forward, okay, from the cross forward, okay? And right here I've got an interval, I'm calling this the millennium. I'm going to talk with you at length about that. But in the New Testament, you have what, what Paul would call the present evil age or the age to come. Now, there's an unfortunate problem here that I'm going to tell you about. In the King James Version of the Bible, there are two words for the, for the, uh, the, the word that's translated in the English world. Okay? One Greek word is the word cosmos. The other Greek word is the word aeon. Okay? The problem here is that in the King James, both of these words are almost always translated as world. So in the King James, you would get a phrase like, in the world to come. Okay? However, the proper translation of this world aeon, which has been corrected now, and in the New American Standard Version, is the word age. It's the age to come, not the world to come. Okay? The world, that word is the cosmos, and the cosmos speaks of the fixed order of the world, or the world system, and the order of the world system. Okay? And uh, so the point is, is that when you read the Bible in the New American Standard or other translations where they have fixed this, it's, it's also been done in the Revised Standard Version, which is an older translation, and uh, in, uh, in other translations also fixed this problem. But the point is, is that when you look at the New Testament language then, the kingdom is expressed in these two various ways. Okay, It's spoken as the present age or the age to come. Okay, And it would say things like this, Christ has delivered us from this present evil age. Okay, 
or it would say that Christ has a specific promise for us in the age to come. Okay? And so, if you will, the age to come is something yet future. The present evil age is something we exist in now. Okay? So at some point, there's a break in history where, where in time and space it's going to shift from the present evil age into the age to come. Now somebody tell me, when's that going to happen? Second coming of Christ. Okay? That's when it's going to happen. So the first time Jesus came as a suffering servant, the next time he's coming as a, a conquering king. And when he comes, he's going to conquer. And when he conquers, he's going to put sin to flight. Okay? And he's going to fix some things. And in that age to come, let me tell you, things are going to get much better. And that is the yet future fulfillment climactic promises that are expressed in the gospel of the yet future kingdom. Are you with me? And so there's this language in scripture where you have to be somewhat discerning about what the, the scripture is actually talking about. Is it talking about something in this present church age, right? The gospel age? where men are being invited to believe and come willingly under the rule of God, right? Or is it talking about that yet future age when Christ is going to come and bring his rule by force? Okay? And he's going to set things in order. And you know, of course, in the millennial kingdom, Jesus is going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem. He's going to rule over the nations of the earth. Right? And he's going to rule them good. Right? They don't obey. Guess what? You don't get any rain. That's what the Bible says. Okay, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. And when he comes to sit on his throne and he comes to rule and he comes to reign, let me tell you, he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. Okay, he's going to separate those who sin, <laughs> right? And those who have done righteousness. Are you with me? So anyway, the, you have this, this, this contrast in scripture of the present evil age and the age to come. Okay, now, I'm when I show you the charts and we talk about that, there's actually another break in history here. And that is when sin and death are finally abolished. Okay? Because that does not happen at the second coming of Christ immediately. There is a thousand year period of history where he is still arresting sin. And he is still arresting sinners. And it's not until after this period of history that is said that death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire along with who? Satan. Satan. You understand? Satan is still alive during this time. He has not perished yet. Where is he? He's bound. Right? He's bound for a thousand years. Okay. So... So if you're, with, if you're with me here, <laughs> there's all this eschatological fulfillment in the kingdom of God that the scripture talks about that has yet to even come to pass yet. We're still in this gospel age. We're still in this present evil age. And evil is rampant. And Christ isn't sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. He's at the right hand of God. He's just rolled through the countryside giving a warning, saying his kingdom has come and all who want to enter in can enter in. Now do it willingly. Do it freely. Now surrender. Because the day is going to come, let me tell you, when he's going to take it by force. Are you with me? Okay, so 
the point is, when the Bible speaks about the kingdom of God, it's expressing the kingdom in these three different ways. One is, it's simply talking about God's rule. The next is, it's talking about a present reality that we can enter into and experience the blessing of now. The other is, it's talking about a yet future day when we will experience in the future elements of the kingdom. Okay? And so as this thing is going through history, it's, it's reaching a climactic end. Okay? Events are becoming more profound. Things are reaching their fulfillment. Okay, so that in the very end, after this other break in history here, we're going to have an eternal kingdom where sin will be banished forever and there will be no more dying or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And behold, says the Lord, I make all things new. Right? And he says there shall no longer be anyone that enters the city who brings sin into the city. You with me? That's the language of Revelation 21 and 22. Okay, so then. Sean, yes. Sinners will still repent and be saved during the millennium. Sinners will still repent and be saved in during the millennium. Wow. Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> so let me give you a really straightforward answer. I don't know how that works. <laughs> that's one of the things I hadn't quite worked out in my eschatology yet. There's a lot of things going on in here that I'll talk to you about next week that are, are rather marvelous to me. But you have to understand, in this age is a very different age from this age. Right now, I come to you and I say, hey, repent, you sinner. Because, uh, you know, uh, Jesus is offering the forgiveness of sins. And, and uh, um, you know, if you don't repent, you're going to go to hell. And, you know, I, I don't mean to make light of it. But I tell you this gospel, and there's no Jesus. You know, to you, you're just a sinner, you're in darkness, and you can't see Christ, and, you know, it's something you have to accept by faith. In this age, he's sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, ruling over the nations, right? Not only that, but all of the history of the Great Tribulation period, and and the Antichrist, and all these things that are happening in this little course of, of time, leading right up to the Second Coming, that's all history. The world knows all about that stuff. Right? And they, they've literally seen the Word of God come to fulfillment uh, in, in tremendous uh, uh, ways. Okay? And so, um, what the gospel looks like in this age, I, I think, is not real clear. As a matter of fact, there's many things about this age that are not real clear in the Bible. And that's why it's such a uh, point of controversy, right? That's why you have pre-millennialists and you have post-millennialists and you have all-millennialists, right? You have guys who say that Christ will return before the millennium. You have guys that say Christ will return after the millennium. And you have guys that say there is no millennium. Okay? Because it's a big point of controversy. However, we all know that Christ does return before the millennium and there really is one, right? Okay, well, that's crystal clear, right? That's in Revelation chapter 20, verse 9. Okay. So, uh, okay, so three expressions of the kingdom in the New Testament. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to try to tackle this first one at least. 
The language of the New Testament speaks about the kingdom of God in various ways. Primarily, there are three different ways in which the kingdom of God is expressed. Number one, the kingdom is God's reign, his authority, his sovereign rule as king. In almost every case of the usage of the term kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, the scripture is speaking of God's rule, his dominion, and sovereign authority as king. So when this term is applied, we speak of the realm of his authority and the blessing and power of it. Okay? So it's just like, it's like saying there's a certain monarch. Let's say that there's a, let's, let's say the king of England. Okay? So what is the realm of the king of England's authority? England! England. You got it. Okay? So, so when we speak of the, the king of England's kingdom, what are we speaking of? The realm of his authority in England, right? And it do, his dominion doesn't go beyond there, does it? Unless it goes beyond there, right? Which, of course, in a certain point in history, England had dominion all over the world, right? And that dominion was, uh, was taken to many far lands, Right? Uh, so, if you will, that's an example of this concept or idea. But the Lord, you see, has the dominion over what? Over everything, right? So it would say in Psalm 145, verse 11, They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men the mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of thy kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endures throughout all generations. You see, God's sovereignty lasts forever. There never was a time when God wasn't sovereign, and there never will be a time when God is not sovereign. God is in control. Amen? Amen. Okay. And then in Psalm 103.19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. Okay, you see, his throne, what is he saying? He's established his throne. What, what does that mean? His dominion. Okay, his power. His throne is representational of his dominion, of his rule, of his sovereign authority. He has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. You see that? That's an expression of the sovereignty of God and his throne. We are told in the New Testament to seek first his kingdom so the kingdom is something we seek okay see these are all ways that the kingdom is expressed to seek the kingdom of God well what does that mean well to seek his rule to seek his authority to seek his sovereignty to seek what it's like in that realm amen and so the scripture would say seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you or we are told that they were preaching the kingdom so that they were telling people of the reign and rule of God and warning men to come and surrender and receive its blessing. So that in Acts 28 verse 30 it says, And he stayed two full years and, and in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So there, Paul's ministry was described as preaching the kingdom. He stayed there for two years preaching the kingdom. Okay? Well, what does it mean by that? Well, he was preaching the realm of God's rule, the realm of God's authority. He was calling men, come and surrender yourself to the rule of the king. Right? You with me? 
Come underneath the authority of the teaching of Christ. That's what Paul was telling men. Uh, or we are told of its nature as it exists now in the church, like in Romans 14:17, a very familiar verse. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Right? So Paul is describing the nature of the kingdom. What is the nature of life surrendered to the rule of God? It's righteousness and peace and joy. You see that? And so the kingdom is, is spoken of uh, uh, as God's rule, his authority, but it's describing the nature of what that's like. Okay? And of course, that, that kind of language is throughout the New Testament. Um, or it can also be expressed in terms of the fact that we suffer for the kingdom. Look at this verse in 2 Thessalonians 1.5. He says, This is plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. So look look at this. Paul is saying to these Thessalonians, you are suffering for the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means that they're being persecuted in very wicked and hurtful ways by the people around them. Why? Because they have surrendered their life to the king. Now why in the world would anybody persecute anybody for that? Because now they've decided to do what's right and to love their neighbor as himself and to love God and give God praise. Right? Why, why should we suffer for that? Right? I'll tell you why. Because rebel sinners don't want to come under the rule of God. They don't even want to hear about it. In fact, if you tell them about it and you do the job just right, then they're going to hang you on a cross and kill you. You with me? And so the kingdom is expressed in these terms, that we suffer for it. That we come underneath the rule of God and the, the, the rulers of this world, man, they hate it. Okay? And so the kingdom is expressed in this way. It is the kingdom of God. It's the realm of his authority. It's, it's underneath his rule and it's described in the New Testament in so many different ways, talking about the nature of it and how it relates to our life and to the world. Okay? Next week, we'll talk about how the kingdom is a present realm into which we may now enter to experience the blessing of his reign. And then also, we'll talk about the kingdom is a future realm which will come only with the return of our Lord Jesus Christ into which we will then enter and experience the fullness of his reign. And when we talk about that third part, about the future of the kingdom, I'll go over the charts with you and we'll talk about that. And if you have some questions... Bring your questions then, and I'll try to give you some time, and we'll, we'll maybe open that whole can of worms. Okay? Let's pray. God, our Father, I, I thank you, God, that you have given us such clear revelation in the Bible about your kingdom. And, and that, Lord, it, it, it may be difficult to put it all together, but when we spend the time to think about it and meditate on it and read the Scripture in its context... You make it so clear. And I, I pray, Father, I thank you for, for prophets and teachers who have gone before us in the church who have explained these things and helped us to understand. But I pray for each one, Lord, as we consider this gospel of the kingdom, 
that you would settle these truths in our mind and give us understanding, Lord, so that we can be good gospel ministers. And that when we talk to people about the kingdom, that we will represent you accurately, having great understanding and knowing exactly what people need and exactly how they can enter in and come and find rest for their souls. God, fill our mouths with your grace and with your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.